At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have author Eric Tonesmeyer to talk about his experience with carbon farming and permaculture. Eric is an award-winning author of Paradise Lot, and Perennial Vegetables, and the co-author of Edible Forest Gardens. He is an appointed lecturer at Yale University, a senior biosequestration fellow with the Project Drawdown, and an international trainer. Eric presents in English, Spanish, and, wait for it, botanical Latin throughout the Americas and beyond. He has studied useful perennial plants and their roles in agroforestry systems for over two decades. Eric has owned a seed company, managed an urban farm that leased parcels to Hispanic and refugee growers, and provided planning and business trainings for farmers. He is the author of The Carbon Farming Solution, a global toolkit of perennial crops and regenerative agriculture practices for climate change, mitigation, and food security. Welcome to the show today, Eric. Thanks. It's very nice to be here. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure thing. Well, let's see. I was something of a environmentalist in high school. And after high school, I went to work for a nature center. Oh, nice. Um, while I was there, they sent me to a conference and I attended a workshop on permaculture. Oh, wow. Which I just... Dis- 
basically I said, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life, and that's what I did. I got chills on that one. So you got so it. That was wow. Eighty nine, I think. Uh huh. And I like I like the idea that the sort of a lot of the notion in environmentalism is about shrinking the human footprint down to nothing because uh-huh. we're bad for nature. Uh huh. And I like this notion in permaculture that uh, actually our impact with nature can be positive, and we could actually try and have a large footprint, but have it be a a positive footprint, have an optimal footprint. Oh, nice. That was much more interesting to engage in. What I really was interested in was the what captured my attention was what today a lot of people in permaculture would call the food forest. Oh, the yes. Multi, multi-layered system. And I've really spent about the last 25 years learning about those kinds of systems and practicing those practices. Along the way, I ran urban farms and ran a seed company and learned a lot about the business end of agriculture for uh-huh. small scale sustainable direct market producers so those are those are many of the pieces and actually I came to climate change through that I mm-hmm. um, was reading a book by Tim Flannery called Now or Never which is a climate change a little slim climate change book and uh-huh. he was saying that if we could reforest all of the planet's land, it would have a huge impact on climate change, but that we can't do that because we have to save land for agriculture. Oh, yes. And I thought, well, there's kinds of trees that are agriculture. Yeah. So maybe I have a contribution to make, and that was 2009, and the book finally came out this fall. There were some other things that happened along the way. So it turns out that these really perennial systems have the highest impact on climate change. So that's where I'm currently working. Nice. So I, I, what you just said, I have a bunch of questions about. So let's start with what is permaculture? What's your definition of permaculture? Sure. I mean, I like Mollison's classic definition a lot, but the one I mostly use these days is from Raptor Ferguson, who's a permaculture teacher. Uh Uh, He says um, that permaculture is meeting human needs while improving ecosystem health. Oh, beautiful. And I like that. That's nice and simple, and it encompasses more than the agricultural aspects of permaculture, but mm-hmm. looks, you know, goes beyond the garden scale or the farm scale. So right. I like that. Exactly. Cool. Well, you have a whole slew of books here, so let's talk about edible forest gardens first. Tell us about how that came about, because you co-authored that one, right? Sure. I was really the junior co-author on that. Um, I was teaching some workshops with the my co-author, Dave Jackie, uh-huh. back in 1996 and 1997, and uh-huh. someone came to one of our workshops at that time and asked if we would write a book. <laughs> and... Uh, it ended up taking us uh, about seven years to do. It was quite a seven or eight years. It was quite a long process and ended up being a, a two, two volume, thousand page. I was going to uh, say, this isn't a small monstrosity. thing. Yeah, this isn't a small thing. They call it a tome, right? But we, we really wanted to ground what we were writing in actual science. And that's why it took so long, as there's often a tendency in permaculture to just sort of say things and wish they will be true. Right. And we wanted to really look and say, well, this is a tropical, this is a model that's proven in the tropics, but what would it mean to do it in a cold climate? Let's really 
thoroughly explore that, and we, we certainly pretty thoroughly explored it. And one of the things I'm really proud about about that um, set of books is the chapters on design really really walk you through the process in great, great detail uh-huh. of what does ecological design really look like and how do you go about doing that? What are the, the steps and the practices and the tools for doing that? Mm-hmm. It's a very detailed uh, toolkit for design and for especially people who are doing professional permaculture design have found it really helpful. Right. What does professional ecological design look like? <laughs> well, there's sort of a a, a, a range, I guess. Uh, a lot of what people do is just do home edible landscape designs for right. people. Design the compost and water capture and a little food forest and vegetable beds and a chicken house and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it can also really scale up to the far, certainly farm planning, whole farm planning. Um, and, and these days we're seeing more and more regional planning like urban planning looking at where transportation and building and urban green spaces kind of come together. Mm -hmm. Um, Even sort of repairing sprawl. There's a sprawl repair manual, which is fantastic. And now people are looking uh, sort of like big international development agencies are looking at design at the landscape level where they look at a whole watershed, let's say. It's about time. Yeah, yeah, people are finally paying attention. So I, I think yeah. uh, permaculture design is very relevant at that scale, too, although there's less people at work doing that at this particular point in history. That's a, a growing field, I think, a growing opportunity oh, for yeah. people who do living. Yeah, absolutely. And so, a need. And a and, need. And a big need. Uh, you know, I got probably on a weekly basis, I get emails from people. We're, I'm, we're in the Phoenix metropolitan area here. I, uh-huh. you know, I get emails from people, and they say, who can come and help us design and install our garden? Yeah. You know, so there is such a need, and there's only one of me, so. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and you all have particular challenges down there as well oh, and opportunities. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, this wonderful set of books, you can find it on Amazon, I'm sure. Uh, we'll put them in our uh, show notes, but there's a website for them, is there not? Yeah, ediblefortgardens.com has uh, a bunch of info from that book. Perfect. ediblefortgardens.com. Fantastic. So, your other book, The Carbon Farming Solution. Let's let's kind of look at that and start with what is carbon farming? Sure. Um there are like permaculture, there are multiple definitions, although there's a lot less. Um mm-hmm. the first component that everyone agrees upon is that these are agricultural practices, a huge variety, like a palette, a toolkit of of agricultural practices that take excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere mm. and safely store it in organic matter in the soil or in the biomass of perennials like trees. Oh. And so we're removing, and maybe you remember, maybe your listeners will remember photosynthesis from high school biology. Oh, yes, absolutely. Where uh, plants take atmospheric carbon dioxide and they break it up. They take the carbon off and they send the oxygen back out. Oh. And that carbon is used to build all kinds of things in the tissues of those plants. It might be used as sugar. It could be used to make fiber or, or, or you know, lignin or woody parts or what have you. 
um, within an hour, uh, somewhere between 10 and 40% of it is exuded through the roots to feed life in the soil. Oh, wow. And over time, a lot of it becomes organic matter just from the decomposition of leaves and so on. So mm -hmm. that first part of carbon farming is taking the excess carbon and putting it somewhere productive. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second part is that some people think that for it to be carbon farming, you must be paying the farmer for providing that service. And I'm, I'm sort of agnostic on that. Mm. I'd love to see farmers paid for it. And, and I'm quite certain that we won't be able to do it at the scale necessary for climate change mitigation without paying farmers for it. But it's okay with me if people want to call it carbon farming and they're not getting paid. But my job right. is to help help those people get paid. That's my mission these days. Oh, interesting. Okay, good. So what I just heard you say was carbon farming is taking plant plants, having them photosynthesize and take in that carbon and store that carbon in the plants, in the soil, in the leaves. Correct? Precisely. Okay, yes. good. And Why is the neat thing about carbon farming is yeah. that all of these techniques were already developed because they were a good idea for the farm, uh -huh. not for the purposes of climate mitigation. So it's better for the farm to have more organic matter in the soil. Right. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And there's ways to integrate woody plants on the farm that make the farm more productive. So we're not looking at doing things solely because of their climate impact. We're looking at doing things that help the climate and help the farm. Got it. So from a farming perspective, carbon farming, I, I got that. That's really, really impactful, really important. Why else does it matter? Why else does it matter? Why else does it carbon matter? Carbon farming to... matter. Sure. Well, on the biggest scale, climate change is really a, uh, a massive disaster that's that's just getting underway uh -huh. at this point. We're just beginning to see the impacts. We're looking at a, a massive uh, multiplication of the number of refugees globally from people having to leave regions that are drying out or becoming oh. uninhabitable or underwater. They're saying by 2050, we might be looking at uh, 200 million refugees. Wow. And we saw what happened this year with 2 million refugees in the European Union. It's, yep can be destabilizing. Uh -huh. So in terms of, of human rights, in terms of allowing people to stay in their homeland where they want to be, in terms of keeping a lot of the world habitable for humanity, uh, climate change is a really big issue. Certainly it has its ecological impacts on your polar bears and whatnot, and that's fine. That's not my personal motivation. My motivation is really about people. Uh -huh. You know, ecosystems have 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 dealt with climate changing in the past just fine but we have for example lots of cities right at sea level <laughs> with oh, civilization yeah. is the thing that may not be able to to handle an intense <laughs> climate change right and uh, and i'm sort of a fan of civilization i enjoy the internet <laughs> and the finer things in life yep. like that so yep. i'm trying to keep this and it also represents an opportunity Climate change represents an opportunity, given that we have to really transform all aspects of civilization to mitigate it in a meaningful way. It gives us a chance to overhaul a lot of things that really aren't working very well anyway right now. Right. And it provides sort of a funding stream for doing that as well, or will be providing a funding stream for that as well. And I like that too. Perfect. So f would you make the connection between climate change and carbon 
So let's get really simple here so that our, our, our sure, listeners sure. can okay. understand that. Great. Okay, so there's a, a natural carbon cycle. Our planet has a natural carbon cycle. It's been moving carbon around through this kind of the crust and atmosphere and ocean for since since the beginning of life on Earth. Most of the carbon is in the oceans, but some of that um, then we have some in the atmosphere. We have some in soil. We have some in uh, living biomass, mm-hmm. and then we have some fossil carbon, oh, like right. coal and oil deposits and carbon has been moving between these things for a long long time in a very sustainable fashion mm-hmm. but what we've uh, what sort of between agriculture and uh, burning of fossil fuels we've moved a lot of the carbon from the fossil pool and from the soil and biomass pools and put it into the atmosphere mm-hmm. um, we've sort of concentrated it in one in one area disproportionately and just like if you step into in phoenix if you get into your car on a sunny day <laughs> you'll notice it's very very hot in there because the 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 light can get in and then the heat is trapped inside oh, yeah. that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and some certain other chemicals as well with methane and nitrous oxide and so on uh-huh. they work in that same way they cause the planet to heat up so we really just have moved a bunch of carbon around from one area to another, and we need to move it back. We need to move a large amount of it back. We need to do that fairly quickly in the scale of decades in mm-hmm. order to maintain sort of a planet that's suitable for for human habitation at a at a large scale. Got it. So basically, we're we're harvesting that carbon out of the soil in the form of coal and uh, gasoline or oil. And we're putting it in the atmosphere. When it arrives in the atmosphere, it creates a uh, greenhouse effect. Can I say that? You can indeed say that. Yep. Oh, well, then, and then when we have too much uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, a lot of that is absorbed by the ocean, mm. and that acidifies the ocean, oh. uh, which makes it a much less livable place for fish, Got which, it. first of all, are lovely creatures that deserve to have a life and also are very delicious and we rely on for a lot of our protein. Right. Wow. Okay, good. So there's that. There's the circle um, of getting carbon from where it was to where it is and the impact that it's making. Yeah, it's not that carbon is bad. It's not that carbon dioxide is bad. It's just too much of it is really bad. Yeah. Uh, Too much of it in the atmosphere is really bad. And we fortunately have this sort of toolkit of natural processes we can use to to bring that back down and and we can do something productive with it while doing that which is really cool yeah so refresh for our listeners some of those natural processes that we can use sure okay so really they all use photosynthesis as their driver Ah, but there's a bunch of different tools and and a lot of these are familiar tools so a lot of the things i see that you've covered on your podcast like using compost, uh-huh. using mulch, using cover crops, doing crop rotations, all of these things increase uh, organic matter in mm-hmm. the soil mm-hmm. and organic matter when you dry it out is 57% carbon. Wow. And that carbon all originally came from photosynthesis, was drawn down by photosynthesis. Uh-huh. Um, so one way to do it is just to do um, organic or reduced till type annual cropping systems. We mm-hmm. can also integrate perennials with our annual crops, like planting trees or shrubs in with our um, annuals. And that might be mm-hmm. timber trees, crop trees, or it might be, for example, nitrogen fixing trees that are providing fertility to the crops that are All next right. to them. 
where they might be uh, erosion control species planted as like a hedgerow along the contour. So those are agroforestry systems where you're mixing a perennial and annual, these mm -hmm. tree intercropping systems. Then we have better ways of grazing, mm -hmm. like your um, different kinds of managed and intensive grazing systems where you're moving animals around carefully, keeping an eye on the on the grasslands and moving them as they as they need to be moved. And mm -hmm. then you can get an, an, a much greater impact than that by incorporating trees in your pastures. Oh, yes. Um, Especially uh, if they're fruit a greater trees. carbon impact, and often you produce more food. A lot. The nice thing is most of these increase the yield of food, <laughs> oh, <laughs> increase yeah. the yield of products. And then we have perennial crops themselves because uh, any plant, if you dry it out, is going to weigh about 50%. 50% of the weight is going to be carbon. Mm. So if we can grow perennial crops like trees or cacti or succulents or what have mm -hmm. you, that's great. Uh, that's got very nice carbon. And when you have multiple layers of those uh, in a food forest type system, which we scientists call multi-strata agroforestry systems, okay. uh, then so much the better. Then you've, then you've really got a very, very high level. And then finally, we have some amendments like biochar and oh. certain inoculants. And we have some kind of infrastructure techniques like rainwater harvesting and terracing that can help with carbon sequestration. And then we have some productive management of wildlands. Um, that is also one of the tools in the toolkit. So that's kind of the, the length and breadth of these. I, I come up with about 40 or 50 different categories of tools within those. And then there's thousands of different ways those might be applied or combined on any given uh, farm or, uh -huh. or site. So it's a, I'm not trying to give a prescription that this one practice is the only one or the right one or the best one. I'm trying to provide tools that farmers and communities and policymakers can use to, to determine what they want to, which, which colors from the palette they want to use to paint on their right. landscape. Oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. So that's what the carbon farming solution is all about. It's about solutions. It's in the title. Um, are these solutions just for large farmers or policymakers? Or can we here at the urban farm on a third of an acre in central Phoenix use some of them? They absolutely work. I have a tenth of an acre here in Massachusetts, and I'm doing it all here just fine. So oh, nice. they're, uh, they're very scalable up and down. And actually... The smaller, the better in many ways because we – this is what we call agroecological intensification. About half of the impact – half of the emissions, the negative, you know, the bad climate impact from uh -huh. agriculture, half of it actually comes from clearing new land oh. for agriculture, mm -hmm. for new – you know, cutting down forests for yep. new farms and so on. So if we can grow more food on the land we have, then we can avoid that deforestation. And smaller farms always produce more. Even the USDA admits uh -huh. smaller farms always produce more, whether you're measuring that on a dollar basis, on a ton of food basis, or on a calories per acre basis. Oh, my gosh. How cool is that? Smaller is better. The, the eyes to acres ratio is better. We produce more. So... Small farms are doing a great job at avoiding deforestation. Uh -huh. And then anything you're doing to build your organic matter is key. And any kind of rainwater harvesting you're doing in Phoenix is, 
is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you're reducing the emissions from transportation pretty substantially right. when your food is right out your backyard or right in your neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. So many scientists report that local food can be worse on our carbon footprint than imported food. Let's talk about that. That's, that seems kind of odd to me. That was something that I really... That one of the interesting things about this book is I had to rethink some of my assumptions as I really read through the science. And uh -huh. this particular one was really challenging, and I, I, I eventually was able to get the bottom of it. And the, 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 the claim that's made by a lot of scientists, and it is, as far as I can tell, accurate, mm -hmm. is that in many cases, food from the supermarket, as long as it's not shipped in by airplane, which mm -hmm. some things do come by airplane, but yeah. as long as it's shipped by by truck or rail or, or ocean boat, uh, ocean shipping boat, it has less carbon burn to get it to you than food from your local farm might. And I thought, well, how is that possibly true? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because the of the incredible efficiency of yeah. some of these kinds of transport and the huge amounts of food that are brought. Whereas if you think about your local farmer, often they have a little tiny van or pickup truck yep. that's not in that's not tuned up well and it's not filled so you lose a lot of efficiency that way but what I what I learned actually is that a CSA outside of town for example can be can have a worse carbon footprint than a supermarket in the city but if you if the same CSA delivers to a drop-off point in town or goes to people's houses then it has a better footprint hmm and a new study that just came out um, says that the dividing line is about 25 miles. So the, the magic distance, according to this new study, is about 25 miles. That if the farm is, is 25 miles or less from the, from the city where they're selling, then that has a better carbon footprint. But as farms get farther and farther from the city, you lose more and more. And it, it seems to me that what this is really pointing at is just the the real unsustainability of driving individual cars. Right. That's really what this points to is that our transportation system is a mess and the individual car is really a terrible way to get people around in terms of energy efficiency. Exactly. So better public transportation and, and uh, redesigning cities to be more pedestrian and bike friendly and so on is really the answer to this along with um, – food hubs and other kinds of techniques that help to aggregate farmers' products and get them to the city without having a bunch of individual vehicle trips. Right. That seems to be, that's the answer I more or less arrived at. And certainly that a farm right in the city is absolutely the highest and best um, in terms of carbon, unbeatable. When I went back to college, I went back to college late in life. I was uh, 39, so this was like 1999. <laughs> One of the classes I took was... Uh, transportation planning i have a planning degree actually i have two uh, planning degrees oh excellent yeah and so they talked a lot about trip stacking um yes so that's, for me yes. that's a also a concept out of permaculture called stacking functions um but they taught you know the a lot of what we talked about in that particular class was trip stacking and uh, the uh. importance of that so and for our, do you know what that is you do yeah i learned that from jerome actually <laughs> Jerome was on last week. Jerome Osentowski taught oh. me that, though you should never take a trip for just one thing. Exactly. Exactly. The, so, call him a permatrip. <laughs> permatrip. There we I love that. Uh -huh. Love that. So, 
what is a tropical home garden? I'm shifting a little bit on you here. Uh, what is a tropical sure. home garden and what can the urban farm movement learn from them? Sure. Well, the tropical home garden is an agroforestry practice uh, that goes back as far as 13,000 years oh in gosh. Indonesia. It's a real, real old practice around the world and was actually one of the inspirations for the permaculture, was really the inspiration for the permaculture food forest. In the tropical home garden, they're, they're very, very common um, like my wife is from Guatemala and her mom has one. So mm -hmm. if you walk into their backyard, it's very small. It's less than a tenth of an acre. There's an avocado and there's a cherry mm. and there are bananas and papayas and there are vegetables and medicinal plants and other plants that are used to wrap tamales. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's poultry, there's compost, and then the, all of the... Um, the dishes and the laundry are washed back there, and that gray water is soaked right into the, oh. right into the food growing area. So it's just a collection of all the useful stuff you want to have, which includes a lot of trees along with some small livestock often and, mm -hmm. and vegetable crops, just because it makes sense to have all those things close by. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there, not only is this a practice that goes back thousands of years, but a lot of scientists have looked at it quite a bit. and. And it seems to me that those of us interested in planting food for us would <laughs> would make sense for us to to go to those teachers and yeah. study what they've been learning, um, rather than trying to make it all up ourselves uh, yeah. or or claim credit for having invented the idea ourselves. Right. Wow. So been into permaculture since 1991. Didn't know that. That is cool. So well, you know, I learned so much in this book that was really new to me, uh -huh. including that. And also that a lot of these practices are being done on a huge scale around the world, that actually the permaculture movement itself is a tiny drop in a huge ocean of regenerative agriculture practice around the world. Wow. That, uh, and really the tropics are where most mm. of the best stuff is happening. There are, let's see, let me convert from hectares. There's about 250 million hectares between, I'm sorry, acres, 250 million acres uh -huh. between food forests, uh, these tropical home gardens, and other multi-strata systems like coffee and cacao grown in the shade of other trees oh, and right. so on. 250 million acres. Mm -hmm. That is a big use of the world's land. So many of these kinds of agroforestry practices are, are measured in the hundreds of millions of acres. So, um, we were a little late to the game in permaculture, <laughs> but a lot of that stuff you don't find in the, you know, you really have to look to go to go find this. You have to dig down into the scientific literature. So so I, I emerged really hopeful that while some of the practices I profile in the book are new and wild and crazy, uh -huh. like growing perennial grains or woody agriculture or restoration agriculture or some other things people are excited about, let's say, in the U.S. permaculture movement right now. Uh-huh. With, with good reason, they are exciting, but let us not ignore these other things that are being done on a massive scale and have been done for a really long time. Mm. Um, so that's pretty hopeful that, and, and there's a number of these agroforestry movements that have come about since the 1970s, since the early 1970s, that again are done on a huge scale. So in China, there are, let's say about uh, 10 million acres in agroforestry with fruit and timber trees intercropped with annual crops. That's a pretty big amount of land. That's oh, a very yeah. large amount of land. And, uh, and the same holds true. They're actually 14% of all of Europe's farmland is agroforestry of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. 
So these are really impressive numbers, and it means we don't – some of these things are, are ready to be scaled up on a really big scale. Oh, yeah. I would say the cold climate food forest is not one of those things. We're still <laughs> learning to go from the backyard scale to the one-acre or five-acre scale maybe, but right. but intercropping you know, timber trees with the annual crops, that's ready to be done on hundreds of thousands of additional acres, acres yeah. without needing to know a whole lot more. Um, so that was fun. It's been fun to learn to sort of be put in my place and get humbled a little bit <laughs> learning about just how big and interesting and cool a world it is. There's another one called System of Rice Intensification. Uh-huh. It's a way to grow rice without flooding that uses mulching and a lot of really nice annual cropping practices, basically. Uh -huh. But it's now being done by an estimated 10 million farmers around the world. Wow. There's more land in system of rice intensification than there is certified organic annual cropland. And yet I'd never heard of it until I started writing this book. So it's been really fun to, to get to see all the amazing diversity of practices that are out there and to see who all is practicing them around the world. Just people who don't have Internet access mostly. Yeah. So it sounds to me like there's a lot to be excited about. There really is. I, I, I did not expect to write a book about climate change and come out of it more hopeful about climate change. But that's <laughs> wow. actually what happened. Yeah. The technical basis of climate change mitigation is is very, very doable. It's really the the political part is completely another story. But right. on the technical basis, we can absolutely mitigate climate change to a livable level like a 350 parts per million. It, mm -hmm. it is a doable project. Um, and that's really cool to know. And it's important yeah. for people to hear that. Cause I think the discouragement turns people off from even wanting to think about it because right. it's so great. So you've used the word agroforestry on multiple occasions since we started this interview. And for those of listeners out there that don't know what that means, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Great. Okay. So defining agroforestry. Um, agroforestry as a science really uh, began in the 1970s, sort of in response to the environmental crisis. But many of these practices go back thousands of years. Again. And basically, agroforestry means any kind of agriculture where woody plants are involved. So where trees oh, or shrubs or right, cool. bamboo or something is involved. So some of those are... Um, there's sort of tree intercropping systems mm -hmm. where trees and annuals are grown together. There's right. silvopasture where you have trees and pasture. There's a multi-strata, these multi-level systems. And then there's a miscellaneous category that has really cool things like aquaforestry, where you combine trees and aquaculture together. So Whoa. a lot of the really fun stuff lives in that miscellaneous category. And that's basically agroforestry. It's agriculture that involves trees in some way that intentionally and intensively integrates trees yeah oh cool thanks for that so can you tell us about your own urban garden the one you described in your book paradise lot sure thing uh let's see so um in 2004 uh i moved to this current site with my friend jonathan we'd been living in the country and we ran a seed company but we found that uh, it was a very hard place to meet women as single guys. Oh, yes. living in the <laughs> so, so we moved to the city because mm -hmm. you have better odds here. Um, and we bought a duplex with a shared back 
yard with the idea oh. that maybe someday we would meet women and we would each have our own side of the house, but we could still share the garden. And in fact, it only took three years until we each um, uh, had a sweetie move in with us. So, oh, nice. Um, and we, we all continue to live here. There's a, a little kid on each side of the house, and the, the backyard is doing lovely. We, we went through a very intensive design process. Um, actually, our, our garden is the case study in those edible forest garden books oh, uh, cool. in the design chapters. Uh-huh. And we, so we set our goals, and then we analyzed the site, and we looked at where the sun and shade are and what diff- really different uh-huh. kinds of terrible soils we have. And... Um, and uh, began planting uh, in 2004, and at this point we have about uh, somewhere over 300 species of useful perennials, uh, along with a bunch of annuals and some poultry and fish and silkworms and things like that. Um, it's doing really well. We have over 50 species of fruit, mostly small things, you know, dwarf things yeah. and and shrubs. Uh, we have about 80 or 90 species of perennials with edible leaves. Lots of nitrogen-fixing species mm-hmm. and beneficial insect plants and ground covers. Um, uh, a great a great number of the species we grow are native to our region, and we think that's important to. We I like to challenge people in permaculture to try and choose half native species, half oh, of the yeah. plants are to be native, yep. and in return, I challenge the native plant community to grow food, <laughs> and in particular, to grow and eat native edible foods and that if they do that, they may learn why we like to grow things from other places because some of the native stuff doesn't taste that good. Some of it's very cool. Um, So we have some of our plants now are real big. We have uh, our American persimmon trees about 35 feet tall this year, and we're doing really well. We have fruit outside from May through November, and Uh then in our greenhouse uh, almost all winter long now we have some fruit in there and, and edible leaves every day of the year between the greenhouse and the stuff outside. It's really nice. All on a a tenth of of an acre. All on a tenth of an acre. And that's a lot to manage for four people. Oh, yeah. With everything that's going on in this space. There's no lawn. There isn't really any open or empty space. It's pretty much all, mostly all garden except for a few little workspaces. So it's fun. I imagine it's a lot like your place except a little lusher because there's more water. Yeah, there you go. Although in permaculture, we talk about putting the infrastructure in place and then just our job being to harvest. Have you gotten to that place yet? Well, you know, yes and no. Uh, a lot of the the plantings of perennials that we've put in these perennial polycultures, these mm-hmm. guilds they often say in permaculture, some of them work well and really it's just a little bit of weeding every year and that's about it except oh, yeah. for harvest, which can be a substantial amount of work. <laughs> yeah. Um, the annuals, of course, need work every single year. Right. The chickens need to be cared for every day. And the, um, the, the big challenge is that we like to redo a few of our perennial beds every year yeah, if they're course. not working or if we're bored of them or yep. if there's something new we want to try. So certain portions of it start back over at year one every single year. Got it. Um, and that's just because we don't have yeah. a lot of space. If we had more room, we would leave them in place even if they weren't perfect and try new stuff somewhere right. else. But since we are so limited, we really ruthlessly edit things out if we're not pleased if, with them. Yeah. yeah, I do the same thing with fruit trees here. So I understand that completely. Uh-huh. So they got to pay their way, right? If they exactly. have to produce well, they, they can't have a cause a lot of trouble or boom, you got to go because there's always another cool fruit tree that could go. <laughs> that is the case. 
So all this is described in your book called Paradise Lot. Yes, so, tells the whole tells the whole story up through fan, uh, a couple of years ago. Fantastic! Yeah. Oh my gosh, do you happen to have online content about this place about your place too? We do. Uh, there's a blog, Paradise. Let's see, it's Paradise Lot blog. Okay, good. Let's we'll see. find we'll find it and put it in the show notes. That's perfect. ParadiseLotBlog.wordpress.com. All right, cool. That's where we keep Fantastic. people up to date about what's happening and what's ripe at different times of year mm -hmm. and so on. Excellent. Man, I'm going to go check it out. That sounds extraordinary. So what drives you? Like, what's your big why sure. for all well, of this? I have to say that initially, uh, the first two decades or so, it was mostly just thinking that it's really cool. Uh -huh. I just really 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 like plants i think they're awesome and i think growing them in in multi-level systems and agroforestry systems and multi-strata systems in the food forest i just find it fascinating and i've really never gotten tired of it i just think <laughs> it's really cool at, at this point my primary motivation is really around that remains very cool but my motivator now is really around climate change mitigation, yeah. sort of avoiding genocide and mass migration mm -hmm. and, and collapse of civilization or whatever you want to say. Right. Um, and, uh, and in particular, steering the money that exists and the money that will be coming to these kinds of projects around the world, which are mostly overlooked and underfunded and, and, yeah. uh, and not much, not much cared for right now. The, um, the amount of money that runs through the UN climate finance mechanism, which is a very complex bowl of spaghetti when you try and pick it apart. <laughs> That's a way of putting it. It's, it's over 300 million, $300 billion a year, 300 billion wow. with a B dollars a year. Only 2% of that goes to agriculture. And almost that, all of that is reducing emissions from like over applying fertilizer and manure lagoons and things like that. Yep. The, um, the percentage of that over $300 billion a year that goes to agroforestry, which is a very powerful tool we have for climate mitigation, mm -hmm. is 0.02%. <laughs> and yet wow. agriculture and land use is responsible for a quarter of all emissions. So my emphasis really is let's get up to a quarter of that 300 billion and that 300 billion is going to be headed up towards a trillion dollars a year over the next decade. So right. there's a real opportunity to finance the massive scale up of these permacultural practices. And I would really love to see that happen. Having run a farm, having run a seed company, uh, having helped maybe a hundred or so farmers develop business plans. I know that financing is a key limitation, oh, access to land, big time. uh, access to markets. Um, yep loans, grants, and so on is a key limiting factor. So I, I think this really might be an opportunity for us to to channel unheard of amounts of money into these amazing kinds of regenerative agriculture. And I'm really trying to make it my work to do that. I can tell. I can hear the passion in that. Yeah, that's fun. How great would that be to be talking about? In fact, within the last month, I've had conversations with two foundations who read the book and contacted me and would like to wow. start to uh, send millions of dollars in this direction. I won't say who they are yet. We're yep. still firming things up, but, but that's really exciting to be, to be in that position, um, to yeah. be able to set some money where it can really be used. Make a difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. So I'm all about education. And I have to know, is there a book or maybe two that have been really influential for you in this process in your life? Sure. Well, there have been many, many books that changed my life over the years. And, you know, starting with Permaculture One, actually. Permaculture oh, wow. One is the first permaculture book that I ever read. Mm -hmm. And um, I still return to it every couple of years and read it through. Certainly, you know, all the permaculture books from Mollison have been really, really big for me. Um, in recent years, well, this um, this Now or Never by Tim Flannery, I read all of his stuff. Oh, and right. uh, this climate book of his is, is really fantastic. Let's see. I'm just looking at my shelves over here. Uh -huh. Well, so I, you know, I, I have truly, to tell our listeners, hold on. I have to tell our, I'm sorry. I have to tell our listeners when we started this Skype call, we were on video and you have an amazing book collection. <laughs> one of the, one of the books I return to again and again is a three part series called lost crops of Africa. Uh huh. It looks at the um, various crops that were domesticated in Africa, uh... including a huge proportion of perennials and um, just very lovingly describes them and lays out the case for their proper domestication and utilization. Oh, it's really beautifully done. Right. And, and actually the book in the last four years, let's say, while I was writing this book, the most important reference is uh, an encyclopedia set called uh, Mansfeld's Encyclopedia of Agricultural and Horticultural Crops. It's a six volume set that covers basically all of the cultivated crops of the world except for ornamentals. So all of the crops grown for timber, for rubber, for fiber, for vegetables, for fruits, 6,000 species, all the things we sow on purpose as pasture crops are in there. And I, I really combed through the entire set to pull out crops, perennial crops to profile. In this book, I have about 12 chapters of profiling perennial crops in the carbon farming book. And uh -huh. um, it's just amazing. It took 20 people many years to put this encyclopedia together. And uh, it's really outstanding. It's actually viewable in an online database. But you have to wow. search. You have to type in the species you're looking for. You can't just look for all fiber crops or oh, something. Got it. So you have to know a little something there. But it is a. But if you have a crop you're interested in, it has really great information um, in the in the database. And um, that six volume set sits right in the heart of my bookshelf. And um, I've now been through it again, pulling together a global inventory of perennial vegetables. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just really, wow. it's so amazing that people spent so much time, uh, really lovingly compiling this amazing resource and it's oh, really yeah. nice to be to use that and and make it available to people through the book who maybe aren't going to pour through right you know all six volumes of that but to sort of pull out some highlights for people has and been a real treat making it available online what's the name of that again mansfeld's encyclopedia of agricultural and horticultural crops fantastic it's probably not available at your local library, but there are a few places in the U.S. that have that have copies. copies uh, a few yeah. libraries have copies, and and they do have this database, which although it isn't perfectly searchable, it's quite lovely. Yeah, excellent. So, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Ah, well, 
I would encourage people to to consider that uh, that climate change mitigation might be the most important issue of our century. Mm. And uh, and to think about, on the one hand, things you can do at home and things you can do in your urban farm, so to speak. Uh-huh. Uh, but also to think at a bigger level as as a citizen or as a participant in the political process uh, and as a as a resident of, of the the neighborhood where you live whether it's a city or a rural area mm. um, what is it that you can make as your contribution to this great big global movement that that is happening and that needs to greatly grow to um, to address climate change and so many of the things that you are talking about and you're that you're interviewing people about in these podcasts are all really important pieces yeah. and no one needs to be the master of all of them. We just need to have our contribution and know what its uh, relationship is to the bigger puzzle. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Eric. It's been a treat chatting with you. Absolutely, and thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. How can pleasure I pleasure to be here after my mentor Jerome Osentowski? Oh yeah, yeah, that was a great conversation. So, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Sure. Well, the easiest way to get me is through the the website for the new book, which is carbonfarmingsolution.com. Perfect. Uh, my contact info is there. They can reach me through there. And uh, I also have a, a, a lot of resources there, all the mm -hmm. recommended readings from the book with links to where to find them. Oh, beautiful. Uh, and a, a very large number of videos showing these different practices with case studies from around the world are on there as well. So... Uh, people can go on there, check those things out, and then um, shoot me an email if they have some questions. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you again. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years. And that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. Four, four, four. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule, and it's called foliar feeding. 
You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.